This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a busy Friday afternoon, 403-974-8255. Time for your phone calls and your texts. Just give me one eye on this uh, news conference of the White House. U.S. President Donald Trump hosting the president of Romania, the two holding a news conference at the White House. Uh, We'll see if there's any questions about yesterday's James Comey testimony or other matters. Maybe we'll get back to that. Uh, Later in this hour, we're going to talk about this whooping cough outbreak in southern Alberta. Alberta Health Services, once again, seems as though this happens every few years, and it's the same story over and over again. We've got these pockets in southern Alberta with very low vaccination rates. Sure enough, that's where we're seeing these outbreaks. We'll talk about that later on as well. So much more still to come. Yesterday was a very interesting day in the United Kingdom. And it's been, obviously, an eventful year in the United Kingdom. Of course, a lot of this drama started with the surprise Brexit vote, the vote to leave the European Union. That led to the political turmoil of David Cameron resigning, Theresa May becoming prime minister. And Theresa May undertaking a very risky, you might say arrogant gamble, to call an early election with the expectation that they would win an even bigger majority. Well, that didn't happen yesterday. In fact, the Tories lost their majority although they intend to govern as a minority uh, with a, a coalition partner. Now, for her part, Theresa May says she's not going anywhere. She's going to try to remain on as prime minister. Others in her party might see things differently. Although I think the takeaway from last night is that Theresa May got somewhat of a humiliation here, maybe a much-needed humbling, and we still managed to avoid the prospect of uh, Jeremy Corbyn as British prime minister. Although it doesn't look as though Mr. Corbyn's going anywhere anytime soon. Well, joining us for some thoughts on the election results, what it means going forward. Very pleased to welcome back to the program our friend Andrew Apostolou. He's a British historian, has been involved in numerous human rights campaigns in the Middle East. He's a Labour Party activist himself. Andrew, great to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on, Rob. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Well, what, what were your impressions last night? Were you surprised by what happened? Um, to say I was surprised would be an understatement. As I said, I'm a, as you know, mentioned, I'm a Labour Party activist. So I was getting the emails on Thursday. Uh, not much I could do about it because I'm in America at the moment. I was getting emails on Thursday saying, go to Enfield. We need you in Enfield. We could lose that seat. Well, guess what? Labour not only did not lose that seat, Labour held the seat comfortably. Labour nearly won a seat it didn't even campaign in, uh, which is Chipping Barnet. Extraordinary election. Here's the thing. First of all, nobody won. Third election in a row, the British people have said we don't trust the Conservatives to govern, but we want them to be the largest party. Here's the other thing. We had four country politics last night. It used to be mainland UK and Northern Ireland. Scotland and Wales had their own dynamics separate from England. So we are not a United Kingdom anymore politically. The other thing that happened last night was Brexit remains an open wound in British politics, and the people who are the most angry about Brexit are the people on the losing side, the Remainers, like myself. But last night, Remainers, middle-class people with everything to lose under Jeremy Corbyn, voted Labour to punish the Conservatives. And then the other thing last night was about was accountability. And accountability really came home to roost for Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and for Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. The voters punished both of them for their records. You know, we had these horrible terrorist attacks in the UK during the election campaign. We had the attack in Manchester. We had the horrible attack at London Bridge where the very, 
very tragic story of the young Canadian woman who died in her fiancé's arms. Horrible story. And people turned around and said, you know what, we're going to punish Theresa May. She cut thousands of police during austerity. She took thousands of armed police off the streets. Despite Jeremy Corbyn's horrible personal views on terrorism, she had a record of diminishing our security. So they punished her for that. Her attacks on him didn't succeed. And in Scotland, people punished the nationalists for 10 years of running that country and getting not much achieved, and also for doing something Canadians are very familiar with, for threatening a never-ender. Right. <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon was actually asked, what happens if you lose a second referendum campaign? And she said, well, we'll have a third. And people just thought, oh, no, no. So, um, again, we've learned from you on that one. Um, people don't want a never-ender. So it was a fascinating election. As I said, everybody is in shock, um, but nobody won. Right. So as far as is Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are concerned, do you think the gains they made then are in spite of Corbyn's leadership and not because of it? That's a very interesting question, because here's the thing. When you contrast Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, the one thing Jeremy Corbyn has over Theresa May is he knows how to campaign. He's been campaigning constantly for over 30 years. The problem is, it's been mostly against his own party. He was one of the mis- most disloyal Labour backbenchers ever. Um, but he does know how to speak to people, and he's willing to have an argument. Theresa May hid from the voters. She wouldn't do debates. She wouldn't talk to the voters. And so that really didn't help. And people say that celebrity is 80% about showing up. Well, she didn't show up, and she had a particularly horrible moment where she was confronted by a nurse whose wages have been frozen. And... Theresa May said to this woman, this woman whose wages have not gone up in six years, she said, you know, there isn't a magic money tree we can shake. And that was a devastating moment in her campaign. And by contrast, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn did the same format television interview, he was getting cheers. He energized people. He's passionate. I think he's passionate about often the wrong things. And many of his ideas are downright bonkers. Um, but he cares. He stands for something. So as a campaigner, he did very well. As a leader, he's still got a lot of problems because he hasn't yet managed to purge his parliamentary party because Theresa May called the election too early for that. So he is still stuck with 180 MPs who deeply hate him. Um, so that's a bit of a problem for him. Yeah. But I think a lot of people in Labour, including me, are saying, look, I understand his virtues. I still want him to change. And I think those people are still going to want him to change. I don't think he's electable yet. Well, it seems though both leaders have this this problem. Uh, One reporter from ITV quotes a senior Tory MP. I I can't repeat it verbatim, but he says, quote, we all effing hate her, but there is nothing we can do. She has totally effed us. (laughs) What do you make of that? Can she stay on as leader? Well, I mean, what can can I say? The decline of the English language. Um, (laughs) Look, she has, actually. This is, look, look, here's the thing. The problem we've got now is if there's another election, it's risky for everybody. You don't know where it's going to go. The public is in a very funny mood. Uh, the most interesting person on this is actually the famous Labour spin doctor who became uh, immortalised in a TV series, called, TV series called The Thick of It, a chap called Alastair Campbell. He said, voters just don't like politicians much. Um, and so nobody really wants to call another election. So we're stuck with a minority government. The good news, I think, is that we are going to have a softer Brexit. 
And that's because the Ulster Unionists, the Democratic Unionist Party, who are going to prop up Theresa May, who are, in my view, the Neanderthals of British politics. And they're just a dreadful party. The one thing, however, they have going for them is they want a soft Brexit because, of course, they want to keep an open border with the Republic of Ireland because the membership of both the UK and the Republic of Ireland actually does help to keep Northern Ireland relatively quiet. So that's the one good thing. But, um, yes, that Tory politician is, is, well, he's speaking his mind, and it's true. She has. Um, she's a dreadful politician. She is dreary. She's second-rate. She had a terrible record at the Home Office. She won the Tory leadership because the others were even worse. It's really not a great recommendation. But what we really have in Britain is a lack of leadership. I mean, I think that's the thing that really strikes me. I can't see any of these people striding the international stage in the way that, for example, Macron and Merkel are. And we need leadership at the moment because we've got this constant crisis in Washington. Um, your prime minister is a perfectly nice chap, but I think he should spend less time on his looks and more time on his substance. Um, and the free world is currently being led by the French and the Germans. It's a bit of a turn up for the books. Well, I mean, it seems to me if, if Theresa May goes, it's either David Cameron comes back or it's Bojo, Boris Johnson. <laughs> uh, well, Cameron won't come back. I think he's done. Um, it could be Bojo, but Bojo has a bit of a problem, and I'm going to have to use very polite language here. Bojo, do you remember that French film, The Man Who Loved Women? Well, that's him. Um, <laughs> and so you never know when the next one is going to pop up. And UK politics is still a little bit puritanical. We're not French. Um, I think the other alternative is Philip Hammond, who is the very grey Chancellor Schecker, who was previously a very grey foreign secretary and an even worse and grey defence secretary. But he's inoffensive. He's a centrist. He's semi-competent. I say only semi deliberately. Um, but he could probably unite the party because he's so grey. And he is a moderate Remainer. And I think he would probably get the Tory votes in because Boris is seen as a good campaigner, very charismatic, but you can't trust him. I mean, you wouldn't leave him alone with your sister. <laughs> there you go. That's telling. Uh, but in terms of Brexit itself, uh, there's there's going to be no reversal, I suspect. No second referendum. Is that your take? No. No. It's done. No, I think that's a very clear result from last night, actually. It's, it's that we want a soft Brexit. We don't want a hard Brexit. And what that means is... Hard Brexit is we break all our ties with the European Union and we trade with the European Union on World Trade Organization terms, which are bad because it means they can levy tariffs. Um, soft Brexit means we maintain our access to the single market, which is a fantastic thing. Um, but that does mean we pay into the budget and it does mean we're still subject to EU laws, um, but we lose influence. Um, but what that does mean, of course, which is why the Leavers want the hard Brexit, is that at one point in the future, people in the UK may say, well, this is kind of crazy. What, why are we in but not in? Why don't we just go back in fully? Um, so it does leave that door open. But I think that's what we're going to have now. We're going to have a softer Brexit. We're going to have open borders still to a degree. There'll still be a degree of migration flow, which we need for the economy. And even the hard Brexiteers were admitting they wouldn't be able to stop the immigration. Right. Uh, let me ask you about uh, developments this week in another part of the world and, and a cause that's, I think, near and dear to your heart. Uh, September 25th has been set as the date for the independence referendum for Iraqi Kurds. This is a potentially very monumental moment for, for the Kurds. Uh, what's your sense of, of where we're at there? Well, I think they are obviously going to win the referendum because they're not going to vote against it. But I think it creates a huge number of problems that, again, the lack of global leadership means we're going to struggle with. You know, as I said on in an interview actually with the Kurdish TV the other day, 
there are two things you have to do when you become independent, and the Scots had to think about this. And they thought about it in great detail, but still failed. Uh, one is the technical aspects. What currency are you going to have? Um, how are you going to manage your national accounts? And there are the political aspects. And in Kurdistan, that's pretty tough. Where are you going to draw the border? Right. Who's going to be a citizen? And they haven't made decisions on any of those. There's no real process. They don't even know what currency they are going to have. And what worries me is they'll have this referendum. They'll obviously, they'll vote yes. They see leaving Iraq as an end to their suffering in Iraq. Completely understandable. What I think the politicians there have not communicated properly to the people is that that end is a beginning of something else that could also be dangerous. Uh, and the world does not need another South Sudan. You know, they don't have a constitution. They don't have a proper army. They don't have a proper border. Um, they're dependent on everybody else around the world for their security. They don't even make their own bullets. So I think there needs to be a lot more planning for the future and a little le less focus on let's cut that ribbon on independence. But you can't blame them for wanting to get out of um, Iraq. Uh, and let me quote, you know, the Scottish nationalist leader who lost his seat last night, hurrah, um, Alex Salmond, who once famously said of Scotland, Scotland is not oppressed and does not need to be liberated. I think you could say the same about Quebec, but I think of Kurdistan, you could say Kurdistan has been extremely oppressed and is entitled to liberate itself. So I wish them well, but I think they need to plan. Well, yeah, and that's an important point. Look, obviously, I think, you know, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., I mean, we need to be able to support the Kurds. We certainly are leaning on the Kurds right now to, to fight ISIS, but the logistical challenges of a yes vote, how, how should countries like ours respond? Well, I think with technical support, first of all, but also with political caution and tell them, look, we're willing to stand by you, but you need to show us that you're going to be serious in the way you go about this. You know, you can't just pay academic experts to solve these problems for you. You need to build institutional capacity, which they haven't done. I have to say, one thing Canada has done is Canada has actually left its special forces. There. I know you had a one, one of your special forces was killed in a horrible, friendly fire incident a couple of years ago, but you have left your special forces there. And your Canadian government, and particularly your defence minister, a very serious chap, um, have done a good job helping out with the Iraqi Kurds. And I think, you know, that's a very good sign. I, I think Canada's got a lot to give, actually, on this. I used to know the uh, Iraqi ambassador to Canada some years ago, Hawar Ziad, uh, and he really built a very good relationship with Canada. And I think Canada's got a lot to give. I mean, Canada's one of those countries that, you know, you turn up, nobody objects. Nobody, nobody's suffered under the, the boot of Canadian um, colonialism, put it that way. Yeah, well said. Andrew, we'll leave it there. Thanks, as always. Appreciate the insight. My pleasure. You take care. You as well. Yeah. All right. Andrew Apostolou joining us from Washington, D.C., British historian, uh, Labour Party activist, as he mentioned, not a fan of uh, Jezza. So the British nickname goes, Jeremy Corbyn. But it looks as though Corbyn's probably safe for now. Uh, yeah, regarding uh, our defense minister and our position on this uh, anti-ISIS mission, uh, the defense minister, and he's uh, going to be on this Sunday on the West Block with Vashi Capellos on Global. Uh, but he is confirming to Vashi Capellos that the anti-ISIS mission will be extended. Operation Impact, it's called. Our contribution to the fight against the Islamic State will be renewed by the end of the month, according to Harjit Sajjan. That the effort will continue into its fourth consecutive year. The shape of the mission may change, he says. Quote, we'll be there shoulder to shoulder with our allies, but we need to also every year review the mission to be sure that we have the right assets in place, the resources need to be able to change. Okay, well, hopefully we're looking at it that in that way. 
I think the decision to bring the planes home was a purely political decision, had nothing to do with the situation on the ground, the needs of our partners, or anything related to the mission itself. It was just purely political, which was unfortunate. But it is encouraging that at least we remain committed to this mission and committed to working with our allies, and that certainly includes the Kurds. So things could get interesting, though, after September 25th. It's quite likely uh, the Kurds are going to vote overwhelmingly in favor of independence. And you can understand why, but it does create some potential issues. Our number here, 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.